Blog Talk Radio. Welcome, everybody. Uh, my name is Chuck Wally. I'm your host tonight. And with us on the Coffee Clatch uh, tonight, we have a very special guest, Joe Ganofsky. Joe is the author of a couple books, and he's uh, he's uh, well written in many newspapers as a uh, literary critic. Uh, he has written Mordecai and Me, Jacob's Ladder, and his latest book is Bad Animals, A Father's Accidental Education in Autism. Uh, Joe, welcome to the Coffee Clutch. Hi, Chuck. Nice to be here. Yeah, it's great to have you. So, Joe, Bad Animals, where did this title come from? The title the title came from my son. Actually, I stole it right out from under him. Uh, he came <laughs> home with a he came home with a book one day uh, that he'd written in school over the course of a semester. I think it was either grade three or grade four. Uh, time is kind of gathered together for me. But but he wrote this book uh, about these animals, a yak, a cow, and a moose, I think, who all... A yak, a cow, and a moose. Good. Yeah, something like that. I, I might be getting one of those <laughs> wrong. But uh, they, they, ha- they have a bad day, and they it, it's sort of disappointment sort of keeps meeting them every, at every turn. And uh, and I've been trying, at that point, I've been trying to write the book that I wrote, My Bad Animals, for many years, about three or four years, ever since we he was diagnosed at nearly age four. Uh, uh-huh. I've been trying to write my book, and uh, I realized it took him a couple of months and nine pages to do what what I was trying to write about, which was basically disappointment and 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 how that sort of weighs in your life and and erodes yeah. it to a certain extent, and how you have to learn to deal with it and cope with it. Yeah, well, you know, I have to say how much I really enjoyed your book. I I, I can completely relate to you throughout the entire book, and on I can relate to you on so many. Uh, so many levels and so many experiences, but it was it was really good to read a book that I felt that you know it just it fit me to the T. So thank yeah, you. Yeah, you, well, thank you. Uh, you'd mentioned that that I was a literary critic, and I think uh, you are kind of writing these things in the dark, and you don't know who's out there. Particularly when it sort of becomes an obsession, and you do it over many years, and you're not sure where the end is going to be. Uh, but if there's one thing you learn from literature is that the more specific you are, the more, and certainly the more honest you are, uh, the more likely you are to connect with people. Still, it's always a surprise when people when it resonates for people. And I've had, I've had you know people tell me that who who aren't necessarily uh, parents of special needs children who who just are parents basically or or who sort of share some of my neuroses. So uh, so it's nice to hear. Yeah. Well, you know, you know, Joe. What your book says is that this, pardon my language, but this shit's hard, and yeah. you know you don't sugarcoat it, and it's it's great to, you know, get that out in the open, especially being a parent of a special needs child. It is not a piece of cake. It's very hard, and I think you captured that very well. You capture the uh, the essence of you know how everyone feels the the the, uh, the hopes the dreams, expectations that, you know, uh, are not met. It's just a great book. Well, well, thanks again, and I'll keep saying that if you keep saying those nice things. But, uh, <laughs> but uh, yeah, it's, it's, um, it really is uh, trying to deal with it the way it really is, and, and it is a roller coaster ride. You're sort of up and down most days, uh, even not even during the course of a day. I find myself, and I think I say this in the book, I find myself – just giving up basically, you know, a hundred times a day, and then then 
realizing I can't give up because it's my son and I love him and it's my family and I love my family. And so you sort of get back on the horse and you, you, you to use a cliche, and you do the best you can. What I was running into a lot was, was the sugarcoating because uh, the book is also, uh, be, again, because of my sort of literary background, it deals with, with other books too, other books about autism, other books in general. I have everything basically from, from Dr. Seuss's uh, Green Eggs and Ham to the book uh-huh. of Job and, and and pretty much everything in between and how all these books kind of affected me and the messages I took from them, but what I was getting a lot from some from a lot of the autism books was this kind of sugar coating of it and and you know uh, a lot of the platitudes and even I, I probably every special needs parent will will relate to this. Uh, doctors have a tendency, or psychiatrists in this case have a tendency to give you this this little poem or this little essay by Emily King's. Pearl's, Pearl Kingsley, sorry, I got, got it right, Emily Pearl right. Kingsley, and it's a Welcome to Holland, where she compares, uh, and my wife got it too, we got it too, and uh, she compares uh, having a child with special needs, she wasn't specifically talking about autism, but having a child right. with special needs is like, like planning a trip to Italy and finding out you're in Holland, and that just did not connect with me at all, that was, it felt like a bad analogy, uh, so I was sort of against it on a literary level, and it just wasn't describing my situation. And, right. And so uh, I reacted very badly to it and, and sort of had a bit of a, a tantrum of my own. I, my son and I sort of have our, our own versions of tantrums. So, so I had yep. a bit of a tantrum of my own uh, in reaction to it. And, and later on in the book, I actually tracked down Miss Kingsley, who was a wonderful woman, She worked for Sesame Street for 30 years, has fought for mm-hmm. special needs kids, and was talking about her own case back in the 70s, and her child had Down syndrome, which is different from autism. And in fact, yeah. uh, I, I had to confess to her at one point, and I'm not the only one who's had this reaction to her piece. A lot of people love it, of course, it's inspirational, but, but I'm not the only one who had a negative reaction to it, and I had to confess to her that that I had this reaction, and she really didn't care that much, because yeah. uh, she, she'd sort of heard a lot from autism people, and they were giving her a hard time in particular, because uh, it's, a, it's a different psychological barrier to, to overcome between autism and, and something like Down syndrome. Mm-hmm. You know, you you, yeah. you have to learn uh, to sort of let go of the expectations uh, more quickly, I think, with, with Down syndrome. You know right away what's going on, and you, you deal with that. Uh, with autism, it sneaks up on you after two or three years in most cases. Right. Well, okay, so autism is in Holland. What would you compare it to? Well, at the time that that I read that, it was just when we it was basically our our second diagnosis of our son, and uh, and we were just coming to grips with what was happening. We were still a little bit in shock, and I compared it, I guess, to being in hell a little bit, and uh, and uh, yeah, and and the book is 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 kind of a journey. I mean, not not in the sort of cliched way, I hope, but but in the way that I just had to become a better person, and that wasn't easy, and it, it's still a, an ongoing process, definitely, a better father and a better person. I didn't uh, buy into the, sort of the, the other cliche where something like this makes you stronger, necessarily. Uh-huh. I don't believe that something that doesn't kill you necessarily makes you stronger. Sometimes it wounds you irreparably, and I didn't believe in, in the, the whole, you know, lemons into lemonade thing either. Although, in a yeah. sense, I understand the importance of these cliches, and I understand why they exist, because they do give comfort. But I guess I just wanted it to, to show it in its real form and how hard it is to get to that point where maybe you do believe that, that this is kind of something that you, you can make the best of. Uh, but right. it takes a long time to do it, and, and it's, never, it's never fixed. It's going to change from day to day. 
So at some point you were, uh, I believe you were giving an interview um, to somebody and they asked you, you know, has this made you a better father? And, right. And what was what what was your uh, what was your answer? Yeah, that was kind of a revelation. It was what's called a pre-interview, I guess. So, so it, uh, when you're not doing live radio, when you're doing taped radio, they they sort of pre-interview and let to figure out figure out what you're going to say and tell you give you a right. hint of what the questions are going to be, and that's what was happening. So I was talking to this producer. It was pretty easy going because we weren't actually broadcasting, and uh, for some reason she got out of me that what most people couldn't. The real fact, and she asked me, has it made you a better father? I think she was expecting the answer that I said before. Yes, of course, it's a gift, and we wouldn't change it for the world. And my response was immediate. It was like, no, it hasn't made me a better father. It's made me a worse father and a worse human being. And and, and I'm, I'm not saying that just to be hard on myself, although I guess people have said I may be a little too hard on myself in the book. But I'm not saying that to be hard on myself. I'm saying that because it's true, because like you said, this shit is hard. And and because it's so hard, it just makes it more difficult to to be the kind of father you thought you were going to be. When my son was a baby, when he was born, you know, uh, I was the most doting father I could imagine, almost to the point of being right. obnoxious. And uh, as I told all my friends, he's better than cable. I could watch him for like hours <laughs> on end. And um, and I thought, you know, I had this thing mastered. You know, it was kind. Of, uh, my wife and I were a little older when we had the baby, so so we. Uh, so we weren't kind of expecting it, and it was this tremendous blessing. And then things kind of changed. It didn't change from my loving my son or from me seeing him as a blessing, but it changed in the sense that it was just going to be harder, and I would have to be better. Mm-hmm. I wasn't. I wasn't ready for that yet. I was. I yeah. was still happy being the sort of instinctive, you know, in the zone father that I thought I was. Uh huh. Well, you started your relationship with your son Jonah in utero. And yes, as you yes. wrote, lots of people play Mozart. Some speak different languages. What did you do? I told my son jokes. Uh, I told <laughs> I told my my wife belly jokes actually, uh, and she'd get a little tired of it. So she'd sort of I'd wait till she went to sleep, and then I'd sort of whisper knock knock jokes and Abbott Costello <laughs> routines and and all the rest of it to him. And um, and I I think in some sense uh, I you know I'm being a little ridiculous I guess, but I think that's stuck. And and one of the things uh, people who have a child with autism will probably know that there's no such thing as as you know. Uh, Everything's a running gag. In other words, everything's yeah. sort of. They'll, they'll tell you the same joke over and over again, mm-hmm. uh, whether you laugh or not, and uh, whether you, you're getting frustrated or not. And in some ways, I'm not that different. I mean, I, I sort of, in a lot of places in the book, I found kind of similarities between my son's behavior and my own. It's just that his tends sometimes to be a little more exaggerated or a little more, uh, uh, a little more uh, exaggerated. I guess is the word I'm looking for. Yeah. So, so, so I. Uh, yeah, I had a, I had, I had the, I, my, I guess I was giving him the gift of what I call shtick, because uh, yeah, I wanted him to sort of, uh, I wanted him to be a comic. I guess, I guess I wanted him to be a stand-up comic or something. So how's he doing so far with shtick? He's still a pretty funny kid. I mean, I'll, I'll just give you one of his, not recent, but one of his best jokes was uh, he. Um, He'd ask. Uh, he lo- like I said, he loves animals, and, and that's kind of apparent in the title. And he likes animals who are kind of behaving badly. So his one of his favorite jokes was to ask ask what what uh, what animal has antlers and uh, drinks too much, and the answer was elk, a holic. So uh, he loves words. And he loves animals, and and so that's kind of the play the byplay we have, and a lot of it 
it was funny because I kind of realized that we do have a kind of ongoing Abbott and Costello routine, the kind of the who's on first confusing uh, scenario yeah. where where he tells me something and I try to sort of interpret what he's saying and I don't always get it and so we sort of go back and forth and as I say in the book you can either get really frustrated or you can you can learn to enjoy it and, and I right. think I'm going to enjoy it for the most part. Right. I yes, when you're in the moment it's kind of frustrating but when you step back and you look at yeah. the whole conversation it's 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 pretty funny. Exactly. I mean, there's a lot of it that's that's really, yeah, exactly, very zany and very funny, and and he's 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 a sweet kid and he's a good natured kid, so that that's made it easier, I think. And uh, he has yeah. a sense of humor, so so I guess yeah, that's so, stuck. Yeah, uh, Jonah's uh, love of animals. Where does that come from? I think it partly comes from from uh, largely comes from my wife who loves animals. I'm not as big a fan of, of animals in general, pets and such. But we, uh, when we got married, she had two cats, and and she's always loved animals. She's been a vegetarian since she was eight years old because uh, she realized that animals were her friends, and and she uh-huh. didn't want to do anything that would hurt animals. So that was kind of her early recognition. So so we've always. Uh, taking Jonah to petting zoos, he's ridden horses and all the rest of it, and so uh, he's always loved animals. Yeah, but he hasn't ridden any horses across Mongolia yet, right? No, he hasn't ridden any horses like the horse boy. You're referring to the horse boy, which is one of those. uh, It tends to be a thing with me. I find one particular thing that really bugs me, and I and I obsess over it. I've done this in previous books too, but in this one, it was a book called The Horse Boy, which a lot of people probably know, and it was a very successful book, and I suspect it will be a movie. It's been a documentary, but I suspect it will be a, a feature film one of these days. It was written by a man named Rupert Isaacson. And uh, it wasn't my favorite book, but but I was probably a little harder on it in, in, in my book than I had any right to be, uh, because he took his son to Mongolia to ride horses. He'd found that he was himself a horseman, and he found that his his son with autism uh, responded well to, to riding horses with him. Uh, he was very young at the time, and he'd ride with his father, and, and it would calm him down. So he figured to sort of merge that with finding shamans in Mongolia and ride off to find them, and... Um, and that's what he did, and he wrote a book, and he got he got a very big contract for it, which is probably also part of my jealousy. Uh, but I think it was also it was also I had to counterpoint my book against that because I wanted to talk about the day to day things that everybody goes through, like doing your homework, right. getting him up in the morning, uh, getting him to eat, all the kind of little things to find the frustrations and the humor and the joy and all that stuff was the goal of, of my book and, and I yeah. realized I wasn't going to Mongolia and most people aren't and and, uh, and though I wish them well uh, it wasn't a story that I thought you know it didn't resonate with me uh, as much as, as I would have liked it to yeah yeah well you know Joel tell us a little bit about your journey from you were a bachelor and then bam you're a father and then bam you're a father with a you know who has a child with autism um Without any, I know you're not going to give me any platitudes, but how did you change through this period of time? I mean, everything yeah. happened pretty quickly. I might slip into some platitudes because what's happened since the book came out is is people uh, will write to me with very touching stories and, and very. Uh, and I've talked to a few people on the phone who've, who've heard about my book or read my book uh, to try to give them some advice. I generally uh, relay relay them on to my wife, who's better at 
giving sort of practical advice than I am. But I find myself slipping into these platitudes that I fought so hard against in the book because they do exist for a reason. I understand now why people use them. They exist for a narrative reason, just to make the story feel manageable so you can sort of make some some sense of it. But my own journey, yeah, it started quite unexpectedly. Uh, uh, my wife and I met, and, and as we put it, we... We fell in love, got married, and, and had a baby, but not in that order. Uh, it sort of happened in the reverse order, to be honest. And uh, so we were kind of thrust into this life, uh, and uh, it, it all felt like a very big adventure. And um, and it kept sort of building and building. And like I said, when my child was born, I was I couldn't have been happier. I mean, uh, I embraced the whole thing wholeheartedly. I was I was in my early 40s at the time, and I embraced the whole thing wholeheartedly. Uh, but when we found out Jonah has autism, and we never we never really suspected anything, uh, because he he made eye contact, he was verbal, he mm-hmm. did all sort of things that that sort of are counter indicative to to autism uh, at the time, or and the things that he did do that were sort of symptoms we didn't pick up on because he was our only child. We were kind of like one for all and all for one. We were the three musketeers. We had our own little sort of island here, and we were we were very happy. Uh, but once we found out that. Yeah, it did change, man, and it's been that kind of, the journey has been to figure out how I could be better. It's kind of, it gets a little um, postmodern when I start thinking it, when I start trying to explain it, because uh, I was writing a book about not being able to write a book, in a way. Mm-hmm. That's kind of the suspense in the book is partly, will he write the book? And even though the uh, the reader knows uh, he's holding the book in front of him. I, I right. suspect most readers will cut me a little bit of slack and understand how hard it was. And and, uh, mm-hmm. and so I dealt, like I said, with a lot of different texts and a lot of different literature on grieving and such. And one of the one of the things I took on too was the the Elizabeth Kubler Ross uh, five stages of grieving, and which always ends in acceptance. But what she doesn't tell you, and what I think she herself sort of figured out later on, was that acceptance comes and goes. It's not a you're not you don't arrive at acceptance like you're arriving at the end of a journey and you're just there. Uh, that's not what happens. It's it's an ongoing journey. And and so uh, at one point, I, and, and I've been reading parts of the book in public and stuff like that. So so one of the things I've one of the sections I've read was from very early in the book where I said something like. Uh, you know, when you have a child, you're given a future, but when you have a child, when you find out a child has autism, it's the future that's taken away. Now, I believe that at the time, and I was in a very dark place at the time. That's mm-hmm. brilliant book. And and I did believe that, and I, and, and it, it certainly was poignant and resonant for me, and it was hard even to write it, but it's what I felt at the time, so I wrote it. Uh, but as the book went on, and as I became... It's a weird thing when you're a writer, you kind of, and particularly when you're writing about yourself, you become a character and you're kind of detached from yourself. And one of the things I realize is that I have to be a better character. I have to be a better person in order to be a better character, which is, again, very bizarre. I understand that. But uh, that's kind of what I had to do. I had to sort of get better at being a person and a father and better with Jonah if if the book was going to progress anywhere. And the truth yeah. is also what I said about the future being taken away. Well, no, the future is like right on us now. The, the future is, you know, he, he's going, he's 12 years old now. He's going into high school next year. Uh, he's um, interested in girls. He's going through puberty. Uh, he's doing all these things that regular kids do. He's doing it sometimes uh-huh. at a little slower rate. But the slower rate is interesting, too, because I get to observe it in a more... Uh, more keenly almost and almost like it's in slow motion and it's it can be enormously touching and enormously rewarding so i realize now 
I was just kidding myself when I thought the future was taken away. We have a future. It's just not necessarily the future we thought it would be. Right, right. And, you know, I really like the way you wrote your book. Um, it, it, it really spoke to me on three levels, or, or I saw three different plots going on. One was, you know, it started at the beginning of the school year, which brings all of us parents, you know, tremendous amounts of anxiety. Um, right. and, and along with the kids, and then you know you were also writing about um, uh, this, you know, your own process of um, writing this book, and then you were also writing about your the whole process of you know uh, finding out about autism or, or coming into your acceptance of autism or right. the, the world of autism, I should say. Yeah, so well, I, yeah, I really the subtitle, yeah, sorry, the subtitle, like you said, was It's a Father's Education, Accidental Education in Autism, and that's what was happening. I was almost against my will being, uh, trying to catch up to, to, to my wife and to other people, too, and sort of, it was a very steep right. learning curve. But yeah, the yeah. school thing, actually, I mean, I'm glad you, I'm glad you, you, you liked that, and I'm glad it worked for you. I, it was kind of a structure that, that was sort of added almost at the end of the book. I realized, that I had to, because it it kind of is a very discursive book. It, it it wanders around. It's kind of like a long personal essay in some ways. And in that respect, I thought I could keep it going by making the scenes interesting and, and just writing it like you'd write anything, uh, making an interesting story, but also adding humor to it and, and some other things. But, but it did need a structure, and the structure turned out to be that school year, which was a particularly mm-hmm. difficult one because it was the first year that Jonah didn't have a shadow, and we right. were concerned about it, and we were having trouble with the school with the school and the school board so uh, and again I'm sure a lot of parents can relate to that because yes you're always running into people who uh who think they're experts and they're not and they're certainly not when it comes to autism because um uh, the one thing I learned per- perhaps the most important thing I learned with au- with autism is that nobody knows anything uh, the screenwriter William Goldman said that about Hollywood once nobody here knows anything and you find out the same thing about autism. Nobody really knows anything. And the parents right. are the ones who, and this was very much a book for parents, are the ones who at least, you know, I'm not claiming to be an au- expert in autism, but I think I am an expert in my son Jonah. And uh, that's yeah. because I'm with him 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And, and yep. I don't really, I don't take kindly to other people telling me that they know more than I do on that score. Yeah, well, you know, that's really one of the things that Marianne, who has, you know, founded this group, that's her biggest message is, you know, you, the parent, know your child the best. And exactly. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah, you are the definitive authority. Yeah, that's certainly why something like this is great, and I'm really honored to be on the show uh, yeah. and talk about it. Yeah. And um, so... Um, Oh, wait, wait. where was I? I lost my uh, train of thought. Uh, I think at this point, Joel, we can uh, we're about time for a uh, knock knock joke. Okay. Oh, knock knock. <laughs> uh, well, he had a teacher. Uh, Joan had a teacher named Miss Donahue. 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 And let's see if I can get it right. So it was knock knock. Who's there? Donahue. Donahue. Who? And oh, I've I've lost it. I'm sorry. It's something like that. It went went don't know who 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 or something. Uh, but yeah, so um, that was one of Jonah's anyway. Yeah. <laughs> so does that help you well, get hey, your train of thought back? Probably that not. does help. That does help me. <laughs> uh, I was just like whoa! I just uh, had a brain fart and just everything went went away. But uh, so 
tell me what are you know you you spoke about some of these things in the book, but what are some of the most um maddening things that uh some you know doctors have told you some therapists have told you and you know and so forth what 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 things just drove you crazy yeah one of the things i wrote in the book and and we did when jonah was diagnosed uh we immediately started doing aba applied behavioral analysis i'm sure everybody uh, out there in this community mm-hmm. knows about that. But uh, we started doing that right away, my, mainly because my wife, who's also a therapist, an art therapist, had done some research on it and found it was probably the best way to go for us. And so uh, we started working with a consultant in ABA, and she was very good. She was very good with Jonah. Uh, she was less good with parents, and, and I think that was almost by design where where uh, there was kind of confrontational at confrontational relationship and that's not unusual one of the and this is a bit of a digression but one of the things too that people will probably know is that the history of autism and this was something i found out rather late i guess uh the history of autism is a history of, of just blaming the parents for everything and, right uh, although that right. was you know that was done with the refrigerator mothers and all the rest of it the horrible stuff uh yes. to sort of put people through um mainly by the psychoanalytical and psychiatric community but but a horrible thing to do. But but what we found was later on, you're not okay. You're no longer blamed for making your child that way, which was the contention of people like Bruno Bettelheim and and the refrigerator mom theories. Uh, you're no longer blamed for making your child that way. What you're blamed for, or you feel the blame of, maybe even if it's not explicitly mentioned, is not making him better, not finding the exact thing that will make him better, or not being consistent enough in your own, you know, with ABA you have, with applied mm-hmm. behavioral analysis, you have to be so consistent that it's, it felt to me inhuman. Uh, it yeah. felt like it, not that it was particularly robotic and, and not that it was bad for Jonah, but just that for for a parent to sort of try to live that way again 24-7, it felt impossible. And, and I remember we were having a particularly difficult time, this was early on, and and I wanted to write the scene for the longest time because, like I said, it was early on, and and I didn't know how I would write it. And uh, and it was a scene where Jonah was just uh, having a tantrum and acting out and, and behaving badly. And and the the consultants, our consultants, said something to Cynthia and me, my wife Cynthia and me, that was just so galling. And I uh, she'd always talk about how cute Jonah was, but this time she asked us, "Don't you find your son interesting?" Right. And it was just. I don't think she meant it in a bad way necessarily, but it just was ho- so a horrible thing to say. And I, I, it was just because we don't find her, we don't find this interesting. This is not interesting. This is yes. incredibly painful. And yes. and she was looking at it just as like he was an object, like he was a, right. a study. And it yeah, was our clinical study. And, yes. Yeah, and and it really is. It's certainly one of my one of my wife's particular uh, pet peeves is that, and she sees this in her own work as an art therapist is that there isn't the kind of, you don't feel like, you often don't feel like the people who are trying to help your child are on your side. They may be on your child's side, or they may think they're on your child's side, but they're not necessarily on the parent's side. They, there is well, this confrontational yeah, relationship it, where it's almost like, who are you going to blame? Well, if things don't work out, we'll blame the parents. Right, and That's it seems like I, one of the things that I kind of drew from that are that the uh, providers sometimes are more interested in not in being the authority, you know, as opposed to helping your child. You know, yeah, just yeah, they're just not they're not listening, 
and they're not taking into account the, the reality of the situation. They, it can become a very rigid, you know, system, and if you don't sort of fall right into it, uh, then you know, if things don't work out, well, it's not their fault; it's your fault. Yeah. And uh, you know, and that it's terrible that we should there should even be that kind of blame going on, but it happens, and it happens even between parents sometimes. Like who's who's doing what treatment and who's doing what you know what other treatment, and yeah. and uh, parents and whose kid is doing better than whose other kid, you know, and it, it's it's horrible, you know, within the community where where people should be you know allied, and and I think for the most part are and are getting more that way because of things like. The coffee clutch, and we 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 did something mm-hmm. recently. We did uh, a walkathon for for autism autism speaks, I guess. And uh, it was really nice to be in that community because everybody understands to some extent what you're going through. You know, you're not right. you're in in a place where people know if your kid acts weird or he acts out or whatever. You know, they understand. Everybody understands. Yeah. Where you have to deal with even with family and friends sometimes. You're you're always at, at you know you're always on on tenterhooks about what's going to happen yeah. next. Yep, yep. Um, you mentioned Jonah's shadow, and yep. you know you mentioned in the book it was the first year he wasn't able to have his shadow with him in the classroom. Yeah. But you know, talk to talk to us a little bit about you know what you went about, how you went about finding this shadow, and and what this shadow did for Jonah throughout his uh, school year, his school career up to that uh, period of time. Right. Yeah. During that course at that time Jonah had several several shadows uh and then what was I mean I think I focus on just one but he had several shadows and, and they were sort of at different times and uh and uh w- the, cons- the shadow was usually also one of his therapists one of his private therapists who was working with mm-hmm. him and once he started going to school uh we were allowed to bring our own shadow at our own cost of course and and all the rest of it but it it seemed to be very helpful and it it certainly put our minds at ease and we knew a little bit more about what was going on and most of the therapists and the shadows that we we hired were hired through the consultant and she was very good at finding people for the most part and they were mostly mostly young women not all we had a couple of men uh who were in their early 20s probably and in college studying psychology or education and it was it was a revelation to me because i teach uh i teach college uh, i teach journalism at uh, uh-huh. university or sometimes and uh, i was never that uh, enthusiastic about my students who were all around the same age but when these young women and men started coming into our house uh, I was immediately impressed with them, and particularly with their dedication. The problem is yeah. they're in a position where they're moving on, you know. So right. we go through a lot of them, and it was always difficult to find new ones and good ones. Right. Uh, but we generally did, and, and the shadows, uh, the sh- and I think the shadows' role also was misunderstood in the school because you know, I mean, this is something you learn. Uh, the shadow's not there to help the child, you know, with everything. The shadow's there right. to make themselves into a shadow, basically, to disappear. Right possible uh to make your child less prompt dependent uh less uh just more independent and sometimes in the school system here i don't know how it is there but in the school system here in montreal it's pretty overcrowded and and yes. teachers sometimes rely on the shadows to work with other kids to and of course you're paying the way for the shadows so it's your yeah. private shadow uh to work with other kids or to just do more for your kid when they're trying to let your kid be independent, and they're trying to let your kid do what any other kid which it, it do does when they have a problem, which is go to the teacher or go to their fellow yeah. students or whatever. Mm-hmm. So that's self It's not always understood, and it's kind of a tricky, tricky situation. When the school board and the school no longer allowed us to have a shadow, 
they did it also for their own sort of crazy reasons, and then it was it was very upsetting for us because they also did it in a way that was last minute. They told us that we could have a shadow. I think this was in grade five or grade four, and they told us Jonah, Jonah could have a shadow, and then they sort of told us at last minute that he couldn't. And well, yeah, so we had to scramble. last minute. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it was Friday. Yeah. School started on Tuesday because Labor Day was Monday. So it was right. a Friday afternoon at 5 o'clock. We got a call from the principal who'd already made a verbal agreement with my wife that we would have a shadow. And she called basically yeah, a minute before school started, basically. Although it was like right. people, it was, the worst part is we had like the whole weekend to worry about it. And we kept Joan out of school for a week until we did arrange to get our shadow back in for that year part time. Right. Uh, right. He no longer he it was it was so yeah he no longer came after that, but uh, but uh, yeah it was very traumatic and it's it's the kind of thing again teachers and school boards don't understand you know they talk a good talk sometimes but they don't understand what they're putting you through and I realize mm-hmm. they have lots of kids to deal with and in the school that Jonah went to uh, which was an integrated school and and a, a sort of regular school there still were a lot of kids with learning disabilities so they had a lot right. to deal with. I understand mm-hmm. all that but. The lines of communication just weren't good enough, and again, they were kind of putting themselves up as the authorities and not listening to the feedback that you had from from the years of of working with them. Yeah. So now, how many years has Jonah been going without a shadow? It's one or two. That's uh, two now. Yeah, it's two, two now. now. Well, grade five and six. I think right. the years in the book are a little conflated. So, so I think I made it grade five. So I think. Uh, it basically ended in grade five. So yeah. So how did how did how how did he do in grade six? Well, he did. Grade five was pretty good, and grade six was tough. Uh, again, it was more because we we had uh, communication problems with the school, and because uh, we kind of sort of set us set ourselves up. And I'm sure a lot of parents can relate to this too. You set yourself up as as you don't want to like be in their face all the time. But you you have more concerns than other parents do, so you can mm-hmm. be more of a pain in the neck than other parents uh, right. because you don't have a choice. You kind of have to be the greasy wheel, uh, right. and uh, and they don't like that, and you just cause more problems for them than they need, and so you you get labeled just the way your kid does to a certain extent. You get labeled the troublemaking parents, and and things become more difficult, and that's a little bit what happened this year in grade six, so or yeah. last year in grade six, I should say. So yeah, that made it a little difficult, but but uh, Jonah did okay, and and he's uh, he's happy to have the summer here, and and uh, he's actually we're sending him to sleepaway camp in August, so we're kind oh. of freaking out. Is he about excited? Or, is he excited? Uh, about he's that? excited, and we're terrified. Uh, <laughs> but uh, but we're hoping it'll work. Of course, yeah. yeah. Well, okay. You you spoke about uh, quote unquote the consultant. And that's that's mm-hmm. the name of this character in your book is the yes. consultant. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. Tell us a little bit uh, what her role was, and you know, if you had to do it all over again, would you have the consultant, or would you have a consultant? Would you do it the same way? Yeah, I think I think that's a really impossible question. Although it's one we can't help asking sometimes, and and it's difficult. The consultant, like I said was wonderful with Jonah, and that was what we first noticed, how good she was with Jonah and how, how she could get him to do things and, and, and you know, learn things that we couldn't always do. Uh, yeah. And so we kind of envied that a little bit, but also thought it was great for him. Her difficulty with us was just having, 
you know, we kind of rubbed her the wrong way and she rubbed us the wrong way. So it made it for a difficult work situation. Her hands-on, uh, her hands-on day-to-day sort of part in the process was rather small in that respect. We'd have we'd have meetings every couple of weeks or every month, and uh, but mainly we were dealing with you know the therapists who were dealing with him like anywhere from when he was younger, like six hours a day to like yeah. a couple of hours after school when he got older. So um, I think I think we were by and large happy with ABA, but I think. It, it, looking back, I think maybe should some more social uh, things should have been introduced into the program earlier. Uh, things like conversation, which is still a difficulty for him, and uh, interaction with other people, which is still can be difficult for him. So those are the things that I wish maybe we'd done a little more of early on. Uh, right. Yeah. You know, we're trying to catch up on those now, I guess. Yeah, you, you spoke about you know you did the ABA and then you read about the RDI. Yeah. Uh, did yeah. you ever did Did you ever do an RDI program or is there no? Such we a didn't. Thing we didn't. RDI program? We considered it. We didn't actually do an RDI program. We we just tried to institute. You know, my wife read a lot about it, and we we did have a, an RDI consultant for a little while. It didn't last uh-huh. uh, just because it just didn't work out, and it was kind of. Uh, what we liked about RDI in terms of just his social relationship and the way it's sort of the philosophy it works is it felt very organic. It felt much more, you know, uh, doable in some ways, much more fluid than than ABA sometimes. And as he got older, I think it was a a better match for us. And basically what we tried to do is take some of the principles where we kind of just, you know, listen to him and talk to him without asking too many questions and try to engage him in conversation, which are all, you know, in my fuzzy mind now are all sort of principles of RDI. So we we yeah. we thought I think yeah. I think we both agreed that uh, there is kind of a, a somewhat you know adversarial relationship. You know I don't want to get too much into all this stuff, but there's too much. There is a, a bit of an adversarial relationship between the two camps, RDI and ABA, and yeah. we both felt, and I think a lot of people maybe feel that if they could integrate themselves a little more, if they weren't so sort of fixed one one you know, on either side of the issue, that they would probably be very complimentary. Well, yeah, and I think you came to that conclusion. Well, obviously you came to that conclusion in the book, but it's just, it's so obvious, you know? It's yeah, it just seems so to make sense. But it's, again, yeah. people guarding their territory, you know? And yeah, yeah. And uh, I understand it from a you know, business point of view, but this really isn't, business shouldn't be the main concern of these things. It's right. really about helping children, you know, live in the world a little better. Yep, yep. Now, when you went into when when you found out Jonah had autism and you 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 took immediate action you and your wife you took immediate action and you know you guys went all out right i mean you went all yeah. out it's, you, yeah you're, we did you're, yeah well we yeah. we certainly went all out with with uh, aba and and we uh, again sort of took the advice that we were given at the time uh which again i i think was probably good advice i mean we i really should give my wife the credit for this because she went she went and found all this stuff and sort of put everything into action i basically did what i do which is sulk and feel sorry for myself uh which you know i enjoy but i realized when i wrote the book it couldn't be all about my self-pity uh so uh so uh but we did go all in and and he was in jonah was in daycare at the time and uh, we were advised to take him out of daycare immediately uh, and get him on a program which was about 36 hours a week. And my, uh-huh. it's funny because my wife works part time and I'm a freelancer, so I'm work, working, you know, wherever I can. And it was right. weird. That our son was actually working harder than we were uh, yeah. at that point. He was work, certainly putting in more hours. So we did, yeah, we did go all in, and we got a lot of help from from other people because financially it was 
difficult and um and so we were grateful for all the help we got and we felt terrible for people who couldn't do it who had to you know uh we have a good healthcare system here in Canada uh uh-huh. so I don't I don't want to get involved in that debate I know it's a big debate in the states uh <laughs> But it can be slow at times, and for something like this, it can be particularly slow. So if we would have waited, I mean, we, if we would have waited to get a diagnosis for Jonah, uh, we got a private diagnosis. If we would have waited to get a, uh, a healthcare diagnosis, uh, we would have had to wait a year and a half, which is basically yeah. what we wait. We got our second, our second diagnosis was from the the regular healthcare system, and that yep. came a year and a half later. And they could have given us some therapy, but they couldn't have offered us. As much as we were doing, they could have offered us maybe ten or twelve hours a week, whereas we were doing almost thirty-six hours right. a week. Right, right, And you know, you, you said, uh, you know, you did, you, you went all in, and you so you changed your dining room into an ABA room. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you know, I think you said you, know, you you need to give yourself a little bit more credit because you know you said you sulked and your wife took over, but you know you knew enough at least to get the hell out of the way. No, yeah, her... that was my that was my specialty, getting out of the way. Although I sometimes had to be prompted for that, and like uh, like the, like the kids, I had to get a verbal prompt to get out of the way, uh, like go the hell downstairs, dear. Uh, but uh, yeah, no, I mean, yeah, it's true. And, and basically, I I stuck it out, and I sort of did what I could, and sometimes made things worse. But but for the most part, I think helped out, and uh, and it did change our lives. I mean, what happens, you know, like I said, we were both kind of independent, and we both worked on our own, and 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 never, you know, one of the sort of the, the biggest accomplishments of my career, I think, is that I never had a real job. I've always been able to write for a living, and that's always that's all I've ever wanted to do, and I've been happy doing that. Uh, and all of a sudden, we were kind of a corporation. We were kind of flat corporation slash laboratory, and all these yep. people were coming. And he, as nice as they were, all the people they were still coming into our house and taking over our house. And right. it wasn't again; it wasn't the life we had envisioned. That's really, you know, that that kind of uh, that kind of disappointment and that kind of gap between what you think you were going to have and what you have is always a hard one to, to manage sometimes, and it, yeah. particularly when it's much wider than you thought it was going to be. And yep. so that's what we were dealing with every day, and that yeah. was that was a tough part about it. Yeah. Now you know, I I think that um, parenthood is hard enough when you have a child with special needs. I think that maintaining your relationship with your spouse is could be even harder. And you know, you've spoke about uh, some of those tribulations that you had with Kathy. Um, you know, through, through, throughout, and yeah. um, you know, it, it seems like you know it, it was a very, it was very real, you know, up to that point where, you know, I don't know if you know there was a point where where you know you guys were you know talking about okay, if you want to leave, go. Am I right? You guys, there was yeah, sure, there, there came yeah. that, in fact, I was kind of uh, sent packing at one stage, or or. or sent myself packing right, to right. I don't know which it was. I was away for it wasn't for a long time, it was probably about a month. I'd actually gotten yeah. sick time, I through all the stress and everything. I'd gotten pneumonia and then like sort of uh, my right. wife didn't take care of both of us, so I sort of left but then stayed away longer than I probably had to in terms of being physically better. I mean emotionally uh, I was gone and I got a glimpse of what it's like not to be there and, you know, I can't say that I hated it entirely. Uh yeah. there was freedom to it. I understand, 
you know, why a lot of men can't deal with it and, and, and leave and, and or, or, you know, just things break up or why marriages break up. I, I certainly yeah. got a glimpse of that. Uh, we, um, yeah, we had our tough times and, and, uh, and I think, and it was also because of the way we got married, we'd sort of known each other three months when we got married. We just kind of didn't know each other at all, really. Yeah. Uh, in fact, we went for before we got married. We got married in synagogue, so we went uh, to the rabbi to talk to him about counseling, and because you have to do that if you're going to get married in synagogue or something, so you have to right. by ahead of time. And I thought it was kind of just you know the kind of thing you do by rote, and they say okay, and they don't ask you any tough questions. But he asked us all these tough questions, and and actually said to us, well, you know, if you were 18, I would advise against this marriage, or if you were 21, I'd advise you not to get married. But you know, you're old enough; you can figure it out for yourself. So it was not the ideal circumstance. You know, we hadn't had a, a great grounding in our relationship beforehand. But it's really been one of the joys of all this and one of the surprises of all this is how it did bring us together. I mean, I've, I've, we we knew we had to pull together, and, and even though I sometimes resisted that, uh, I did realize that that was important and that we were in this together. And if we were going to get our son better or if we were just going to get our life back to a little bit more normal, then we had to be on the same team. And, and as much, again, as I resisted it, uh, I realized how important it was. So I was, again, sort of resisting it one day or one hour and sort of coming around to, to realize how much we had to do uh, the next. So it was also a roller coaster. But but it's 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 made us stronger, I think, uh, which is, doesn't always happen. And I guess we were lucky in that regard. Yeah, yeah. Now, um, so you, you to, to talk a little bit about, uh, you know, you spoke about, you know, um, you went to a rabbi and, uh, you know, <clears throat> in the book, there is a point where your wife wants to, you know, have Jonah start the bar mitzvah process. Yes, and, and, yeah, yeah, she wanted, and, and sort of my, my relationship with religion I was born and raised Jewish, but my relationship with religion is is ambivalent at best. And uh, like, there's another writer, uh, a writer named Nathan Englander, who I interviewed once, who I asked him to sort of describe his religious status, and he called himself a God-fearing atheist. And I'm kind of the same way, you know. I sort of uh, have had that notion of God ingrained in me, and it's part of part of being Jewish, I think, to some extent. I'm not just Jewish, obviously, but but I think also part of being Jewish is this notion that you can argue with God and that you uh-huh. can say, you know, what's up with this? You know, did we deserve yeah. this? Is, is this yeah. something you're going to... You can't get away with this crap. And so the book is kind of like that, too. I sort of mentioned the book of Job before, and that kind of becomes mm-hmm. my reference point for that, for having this argument with God, and it's kind of an ongoing argument, not not necessarily with God, but with the way things are, and you just wish they weren't. You know, you, you right. it's not what you expected, and you know that's part of growing up and it's part of life. But it doesn't make it any easier, and that's kind mm-hmm. of what I what I was doing. And yeah, and so so when Jonah, when Jonah started, um, you know, when we started looking into Hebrew lessons for him and bar mitzvah lessons, we didn't know first of all how much time of schoolwork was hard enough for him and. We didn't know how much time it would take up, and uh, and then we also one of the synagogues that my wife went to, to to visit to see if if they would accommodate him, you know, and being a special needs kid, uh, told her, well, that's fine, but you and your husband really have to be part of the community. You have to come uh-huh. to the synagogue all the time. You have to participate in the rituals, 
and I didn't want any part of that because, you know, I like I said, my relationship with God is my own, and it's really sort of right. outside of institutionalized religion, and not mm-hmm. that I sort of blame institutionalized religion for for any of that, but it's the way it is. And I got sort of up on my high horse and said, I'm not doing that, no way. And we kind of compromised in that uh, she found a place that was a little more uh, willing to leave me alone. And uh, and uh, what I didn't realize was how much Jonah loved this stuff. I mean, he just he loves Hebrew. It's something he learned immediately, almost, and it's a very difficult language to learn. Really? Wow. Yeah, yeah. He learned it. My wife and he. My wife had had some lessons earlier on, and so did I, but a long time ago, and uh, and remembered how hard it was. And uh, well, one of the great gifts of learning Hebrew is you really don't have to know what any of it means. I didn't know what it meant when I was learning it from my bar mitzvah, and he didn't know what it meant, and and that was took less. The stress on him, like then the schoolwork he had to do in school, where you do have to, to comprehend what you're reading, and which is something he has difficulty with. So here he could just use his his memory, his, his sort of ability to memorize things and visualize the, the language. Uh, it's kind of almost like uh, Japanese in a way, the language because it's uh-huh. characters and stuff. And so he could visualize all that and learn it very fast. And and he's you know most of the his bar mitzvah won't be till next spring, but but he's most of the way through the stuff he has to learn. And he sings it and he he loves it for the most part. And he went to Torah school with all the other kids and and had a great time. And uh, and it's been and I and I think there probably is if I was going to be a little more open minded about it, there probably is some spiritual connection for him that that. I don't see because it's not there for me necessarily. Mm-hmm. But I sure. think he does. That. I, I think he does have a, a spiritual connection that that I'm grateful for. Yeah, you know, I, I just have to admit that's. I I am not Jewish, but um, my significant other is, and I've I've had a few occasions to attend some uh, bar mitzvahs, and I just and I I immediately started wondering about my own son, and right. if. How what would it be like for him to go through and then here so your son is going through that and I was thinking how how incredibly hard it would be but you know it sounds like Jonah it just flourished. Uh, yeah, I mean I, I, he's he's really enjoyed it and it's, it was it was when school wasn't going it was regular school wasn't going so well going every Saturday morning as he did to to Hebrew school uh, and sort of taking part in all that ritual and, and being very successful at it was a great, you know, boost for him, I think, and and also just great to see because, uh, you know, we, you still never know what's going to happen. You know, it's, uh, bar mitzvahs are like a performance. I did it myself, and you, you, I, I remember right at the end my voice cracked uh, and never came back. Uh, so so you never know what's going to happen, but... But uh, but he enjoys it, and, and uh, we're more lo- we're more looking forward to it now than we were dreading it in the past, I guess. Well, like, best I, I of luck. I understand your feelings, but yeah, 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 cool. Well, so tell us a little bit about Kathy. I mean, she sounds like uh, yeah, it's Cynthia. Kathy. Sorry, it's Cynthia. Oh, Cynthia. I'm sorry, yeah. Cynthia. Yeah, sure. oh, I, no I problem. apologize. Um, no problem. Cynthia, she sounds like a rock. I, I, there's no other way to yeah, she it. she uh it was interesting because uh, she wasn't reading the book as I was writing it and and the book as I said took a long time to write but I I, I wasn't actually writing about it for for most of those years I was just thinking about writing it uh writing it and it was only after I wrote a couple of sample chapters that I liked and and found a publisher and got a contract for the book that I started writing it in earnest so that was over the course basically a year, although I'd, I'd done some of the work before. And so uh, she'd read little bits of it 
prior to that, but hadn't read anything that I was actually working on over that year and was nervous about it. And, uh, and towards the end, I hadn't actually finished it. I sent her off with, with the manuscript. She went off to the country for a couple of days to, to read yeah. the manuscript. And it was a kind of nerve-wracking time for both of us because she didn't know what she was getting into and and I didn't know how she'd react to it. Uh, it turned out all right, although not immediately. At first, she had a couple of things that she wanted changed. But they were she thought they were big deals. She sort of leads with these things like they're the biggest deal, and, and they were really quite minor from a writing point of view. But but yeah, she she's definitely a rock, and and it's her sense of humor and her you know I would just she would say things to me uh, and make fun of me, which is what I needed at times, and and uh, and I would just say I'm writing that down right now, and I would do that. I would just write it down verbatim, and it would get get into the book. And I also told her early on that that she would get a, a chapter in the book, a, la- a last chapter. It turned out to be the second <laughs> last chapter, but I told her she'd get a last chapter. But she kind of misinterpreted that as meaning that she would write it. Uh, right. I know he's not writing it. We kind of did it as an interview, but 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 she sort of got all the useful things in there in that chapter because, you know, I make a joke about the book not being particularly helpful to people. Uh, I think it is in its own way, but I think it wasn't intended to be a self-help book. It was intended to be a, a good story that people could relate to. Uh, but she got all the stuff about you know how people should treat parents and things like that in there that she she wanted to deal yep. with. And I think I did it kind of in a, in a humorous way. It was kind of yeah. I called it her Molly Bloom chapter, uh, but yeah, with right. Education. So uh, so that was kind of a little literary reference. So so yeah, and she um, uh, in the end, uh, it's kind of become a our project. All three of us really. My son, like I said, gave me the title, and and and, and my wife recently. I, I did a speaking engagement to a group of uh, teachers and and childcare workers. And she came along and kind of stole the show by sort of giving them a pretty, pretty good and necessary lecture about you know how to make parents partners in all this you know. So yeah. I, I was basically telling a few jokes and she she did the serious stuff. So so it has become kind of a partnership and and we're all invested in in the book as as much as anything. And so she did. She is troubled because she's a pretty private person, and I'm not. Mm-hmm. I've always written about myself. It's nothing new. This is not a new experience for me. So I'm used to that. I'm used to sort of being able to detach from the character, even if it is me. Uh, she's not used to that, and a lot of people will say, you know, people even we know quite well will say how much they liked her after the book, and you sort of wonder what were they, what were they thinking before the book. Uh, so they got a glimpse into our lives that she's not always that comfortable with. And early on, in fact, she told me, you know, to tell people, when I went off to do my first reading in, in Toronto uh, uh, to a, a breakfast club or something, she told me to uh, tell the people there, you know, that we'd really appreciate it if they buy the book. Uh, we're really happy that they're supporting it, but by no means should they read the book because it's none of their business. <laughs> so she's had some 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 issues with, with the honesty in it, I guess. And a lot of people have, you know, sort of told me that in a, in a surprised voice, like what they've liked about it and what maybe they've been a little stunned about, about it by is how honest it is. But I don't know any other way that you would write a book like this. I'm not just saying me, but I'm not sure how anybody else would write a book like this without being as honest as you can be because I know that's what will connect with people. So it's almost yeah, well, like it's nothing noble about it. It's a strategy, you know, and so... Uh, you do it for that reason. Well, I, I, quite frankly, I think the honesty is the nobility in it because it, you know, when I read it, I, I feel as though there are other people out there who are going through the same thing I am. You know, yeah. because it, yeah. it, it, it's it's not easy. It's not easy, and you know, we're we're not super people. 
And, you know, <laughs> yeah, we want to just, you know, roll over in bed and just not listen to whatever's going on and, and just, you know, not deal yeah. with it. But you know, we have to. Uh, yeah, that's true. And, and and the woman who I'd mentioned before, Emily Pearl Kingsley, who wrote Welcome to Holland, when I spoke to her, she said she had a new motto, and, and it was, you know, instead of, like, Welcome to Holland, it was, we're all in the same boat. It's maybe not right. the great boat. It's not the cruise ship that's, you know, around the corner, but all of us are in the same boat, uh, yeah. by which she meant people with special needs. And this book is for parents, and, and it's for, you know, because Parents, the, the people who helped us the most often were parents who were a little further along in the process than we were. And they, I remember exactly. one particular couple taking us out to dinner and sort of telling us, you don't worry, but it's going to be all right. And, and the other day, like I said, people have been calling me. Uh, a friend of mine recommended that this other person that worked for him call me and, and ask me what was going on. And he was at a very early stage, a stage I remember very well where you are kind of, completely paralyzed by this information yes. you, you've, yes. you've been denying it in a way because you, it's right in front of you and he was talking to me about how hard it was for him and his wife was having a much even a harder time than he was and i didn't know what to say to him really and i was all i, I almost burst into tears because uh not just for him but for remembering what i'd gone through and, and it's uh I tried to help him as best i could but uh but it's really a time you just have to sort of you know, then you bring up the cliches. You have to just hold on and, and hope for the best because things do yeah. get a little easier. Yeah, uh, uh, well, not a lot easier sometimes, but a little easier. Well, Joe, I have to tell you, you are you know you are a kindred spirit with your um, with us here in the coffee class because that's what we're all about. You know, it's it's we don't have the answers. We just have experience. And right, exactly. Um, you know, and you're right. We're all in this together. Yeah. So. Yeah. Uh, Joe, I really want to thank you for, you know, taking this time with us tonight. It is a great book. It's Bad Animals, A Father's Accidental Education in Autism. Mm -hmm. And the author is Joe Yanofsky. And uh, it's uh, published by Penguin Books, and I highly recommend it. And everyone should go out and uh, get it tomorrow. Oh, thanks very much, Joe. Thanks a lot. This uh love talking to you. Um best of luck. Me too. Nice talking to you. Great. All right, thank you. Thank you. Okay. Uh, coming Bye. up. All right, goodbye. Uh Bye. on the uh coming up on the coffee clutch uh tomorrow, we're going to have a session about how to calm a fearful anxious child. And Tuesday, we're talking about driver's education, driving and your teen on the spectrum. Wednesday evening, uh Block Talk Radio with Priscilla Gilman. The anti-romantic child, romantic child, and on Thursday we're talking about one step forward, two steps back, the special needs parenting setbacks. And with that, uh, like to end the show as we always do. You are your parent. You are your parents. You are your child's best advocate. If not you, then who? Um, everybody, have a good night. Uh, have a good week, and uh, we will talk to you soon. Have a good night.